We're going to jump right in to John uh, chapter 5, and then hopefully um, the Lord will help us with some things that I think He really needs to help us with this morning. So this is John. Chapter 5, starting at verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the precious gift of your revelation that you have given us. Lord, thank you for the immense grace, the the untamed light that comes through these stories of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And now with this text uh, between us all uh, today, may we see the beauty of Jesus. May Christ be all the more lovely to us this morning because of your Spirit working through your Word. Would you give us the eyes to see the goodness and the truth? that is in Jesus Christ, would you give us ears to hear your voice, and would you heal us today from the things that we need to be healed. We love you, Lord. Help me to be um, a a help to my brothers and sisters. Amen. You may be seated. Now, why would Jesus ask that question? Why would Jesus ask this man the question that he does. Why would Jesus ask an invalid, a man who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years, who had some kind of sickness for 38 years, who was encamped by a supposed hot spot for miraculous healings, why would Jesus ask that guy, do you want to be healed? Personally, I think it's a bit of a strange question. But the answer might be even more strange than the question itself, as I think we'll see this morning. So today we continue on with um, a master practitioner of the apprenticeship practice of Scripture meditation. 
And that master practitioner is John, the Apostle John himself, the one who wrote the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a book about Jesus. Gospel means good news. And so this is the, the good news about Jesus, who he is, who he was, what he's done, what he's doing. Um, and it's written by the Apostle John. And John has spent over six decades meditating on the Torah, or God's Word, what we call the Old Testament. Chewing on it, feasting on it, like metabolizing it, getting it into how he thinks and how he responds to the world, how he imagines the world, how he inhabits the world. And he's been thinking about the stories of Jesus, his time with Jesus, what he saw, what he heard. And he's curated a, a grouping of stories together, of, of these different signs that reveal more than the miracle itself, but reveal who Jesus is. And so he's curated another one for us to look at today. And we're going to look at the third sign. So the narrative today tells of the third sign John has set before us to behold and to roll over and over again in our mind so that it transforms how we think, how we feel, and how we interact with this world. Now the first miracle, uh, the first sign, do you remember what that one was? Right? Water to wine. And where was that? What village did that take place at? Cana. Okay, so then last week we looked at the second sign. That was the healing of the official son. Well, today we look at the third sign, which is going to take us into the crowded streets of, of Jerusalem during one of the seven big feasts that happens every year in Jerusalem. And it takes place at the pool of Bethesda. So let's go there. Let's set the scene. Verses 1 and 2. After this. What's the after this? Well, that's after the, the healing of the official son that we talked about last week. So after that, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, by the way, you always go up to Jerusalem, okay? All right, so verses 1 and 2. Can we get those up there? There we go, yeah. Um, so we always go up to Jerusalem because it's up on a mountain, but it's Jerusalem. It's the place where the stuff happens. So you always go up. as It's a way to honor it. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Okay, so this story takes place near a gate that's called the Sheep Gate. And John wants us to note this. John just isn't putting in information to show he's an eyewitness. But he's trying to communicate these, these deeper truths of who Jesus is. So all these details are really, really important. So he says, pay attention. This is by the Sheep Gate. Now Jerusalem was a walled city, just like all other ancient cities were walled cities. Why were ancient cities walled? Yeah, right? Protection, right? It was, a, it was a violent world. I had lots of conquests. A lot of, yeah, our world doesn't know anything about that, does it? <laughs> Trying to take over, right? There's, so there's all of this violence in the world. And so these, these cities are walled cities to protect, right? To keep enemies at bay. But then, of course, in those walls, you have gates. And so there was a gate that was created that was called the Sheep Gate. Now, um, there's a slide here. This kind of gives you a, the picture of what it would have felt like, what it would have looked like back in the day. This is one of the gates of the ancient city of Jerusalem. This is in the 1800s. This isn't the sheep gate itself, but I wanted to get the visual of, of the sheep, the shepherds, and, and the gate there so we can get this, this in our head. This gate, by the way, is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, where after Babylon, you know, they come back and they're rebuilding the city. They rebuild the walls. And it says, the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, and they hung its doors. So this is the first gate that is built in the rebuilding of the city. And it's built by the high priest and the priests. And it's called the sheep gate. Why do you think it's called the sheep gate? 
because that's where the sheep would go through. The sheep would go through this gate to go into the city, to go to a, a pool area, to be washed, to, to be cleansed, and then those sheep, where would they go next, do you think? To the temple, right? To be sacrificed. So that is what's going on here with the sheep gate. The gate was known to not have any bolts or bars, as if to say salvation is available to anyone who enters in by the way the sheep, by the way the lamb who is washed and goes to the temple to die. The way is open. Well, Jesus, after coming through this gate, would have come to that pool where those sheep were cleansed and washed. And that was called the pool of Bethesda. So here's a reconstruction of what the pool of Bethesda uh, would have looked like. It's a large pool that was divided into two areas, an upper pool and a lower pool. Um, And basically, uh, it had five porches, porticos. A portico is like a really big porch, right, with, with, with big columns in it. And so the four sides, the outer sides, would have had porches run all along. But then there was a porch that ran in the middle of the two, where there's a little dam area that separated the upper from the lower. So that was five porches, and that's what we read. There's five porticos, shaded areas where people would sit there by the sides of the pool. So that's what it would have looked like back in Jesus' day. Here's what it looks like today. I took this picture two years ago when I was there last. And um, down there you can see some water. Can you see those columns kind of falling over in the water? Right, that is the ancient pool there. So it's about 100 feet down. So when you're walking on the streets of Jerusalem now, you're usually walking about 100 feet above the city, what it was like when it was Jesus' day, right? Matthew, you remember all this, right? Because what would happen? The city was destroyed and it was rebuilt. Destroyed, rebuilt. Destroyed, rebuilt. So you have Byzantine structures and and, um, all sorts of structures built on top of it. But the original pool is down there. They found it 100 feet down. So let's zoom in. Let's go to the next picture. When you go down you get to see those steps. See those big, long steps going down to that green area? Those are the original steps into the pool of Bethesda. That's where this event took place. And I show you all that just to help us remember, like, this is real. Like, this is real. There, there's a, a longitude. There's a latitude. Like, there are real stones. We're not talking ancient myths and then hoping they're true. This is real stuff. So just to locate us in the factuality of it all, um, plus, I, I like pictures. They help me. All right. So, Jesus comes into this, this pool area here. And again, this is the area where the, the sheep were, were washed before they went to the temple for sacrifice. But here's the deal. Over time, a story, a story developed. And it took on a great momentum. Now, who knows how it developed? Maybe it was a, a bold lie. Maybe it was a, a bent truth. Maybe it was a misunderstanding between the difference of causation and correlation. I don't know, but something happened. So maybe somewhere along the line, somebody with indigestion on a really hot day sat down on the side of the pool, and they, they put their feet in, and they saw a stirring in the water because of an underground spring that would have pushed some water through, and, and the, the, the water rippled, and they took note of it, and they got up, they walked away, and they felt better. Voila, miraculous healing pool. I don't know. I don't know how the story developed. But the story that was circulated was that every now and again, an angel of the Lord would come and hover over the face of the waters, and the waters would move. It would become living water. And when those waters stirred, whoever was the first person to jump into the water would be miraculously healed. But only the first person. And that was the story that had happened. 
Well, over time, those five grand shady porches, let's go back to the, re, the restructuring of it. Over time, those five porches were filled with a mass of people. Because if you had a blister, or if you had a broken bone, if you had a cough, if you had gout, if you had nerve pain, if you were blind, if you had a limp, or if you couldn't walk at all, this is where you would go in hopes of seeing those waters stir and your life changed. So again, this is the place where the sheep were washed, were cleansed, and then they were to be taken into the temple. And this, this was called the Pool of Bethesda. Our text says in Aramaic, it was called the Pool of Bethesda. And that means, in, in Hebrew and in Aramaic, um, the house of mercy. Beit is house. And then um, the, the second part is the word chesed, which is um, a word for loyal love or mercy or God's faithful kindness. This is the, the pool or the house of mercy. Why? Well, these souls would go there to experience the mercy of God and be healed. Now, one of these poor souls that haunted the shaded porch, uh, he, he was there an awful long time. We don't know how long he was there, but we do know he was sick and an invalid for some 38 years. But he was a regular, he was a permanent fixture of this sad scene. Look at verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids. What are these? Well, those are the porches. In these porches lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the, wa- the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, if you're, if you're looking at your Bible, you might be like, oh, mine reads differently than that. A lot of Bibles don't have verse 4 in there, which is, is the italicized portion, verse 4 and the, the end of verse 3. So what's going on there? Well, a lot of translations will put that in uh, the footnote, um, and they'll just jump from 3 to 5. Because what's happened is the earliest texts, like the most ancient texts that we have, don't have this portion in there. Uh, texts that come along a little bit later have it there. And it functions to uh, explain what's going on. Like, why are all these sick people around this pool? It's not just because it's summer. It's not just because it's hot and they're, they're ready for a swim. There's a reason why they're there. So this text, this verse functions to tell us what's going on so we understand a little bit more of the story. It's an explanatory note. Okay. So let's take in the sadness and and the humanity of this scene here for a moment. Because what we're witnessing, it's like a triage hospital thing. It's, it's like a, um, a homeless encampment. And it's, it's just, it's a mess. It's like the anxiety is ratcheted up to 11. Everyone is on edge because they're watching the water, waiting for some slight stirring Because if they're the first to see it, then they're the first to get in, then maybe they will get healed. So they're all waiting to pounce. They're all waiting to push. They're all waiting to shove, eyeing other people to see if somebody else saw something. It's a scene full of tension. And by the way, it's a zero-sum game. Because how many people get healed? One. Who's the one that gets healed? The first one in. So that means... One gets healed, that means everyone else 
doesn't. So there is now suddenly an air of competition. Me versus them. One person's healing would mean others remain sick. The whole situation brought out the worst sickness in the human heart in these people who already had sick and broken bodies. This was not a house of mercy. It was a house of mercenary, superstitious religion. And it seems to me that it's a, a brilliant metaphor, a brilliant picture, a parable of the human condition. A mass of humanity, sick, broken, Blind, lame, shoving, pushing, grabbing, pulling, dragging, shouting, thinking that they will be blessed only at the cost of other people, so it's me first. It's a scene of hurting people, hurting people. It's a picture of humanity at large. By the way, the worst of those, those who have the worst conditions, are the least likely to get healing because they can't even get themselves into the pool. It's a sad scene and into that sordid scene, into the shameful and traumatized environment comes Jesus. And as Jesus steps onto the scene, as readers we should be going, it's about to change. Like it's it's going to get good. He's going to do something. And I think it's really important for us to notice this. Like Jesus walks into the mess. Jesus goes amongst the suffering. He's walking amidst the mess of all of this. And that's not just an observation. That's a powerful truth that he enters into the hurt. He enters into the pain. He doesn't stay far away looking at it from afar. He enters into the place where there's the groans and the aches. And you have to step over the bodies. He enters into the place where it's not smelling so fresh. He enters into it. He brings order. He brings hope. He brings renewal. And he brings healing. So Jesus comes and something is about to happen. It's going to get good. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him. Man. When Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? So Jesus surveys the terrible landscape. He sees the sick in the shadows. He feels the tension and despair. He, he feels the palpable pain. And catch this, it says he saw him. Like, let those words minister to you. They, they, they do something to the human heart. And he saw him. We all want to be seen. And when we're in pain... When we're experiencing something that, that is just tearing us up internally or physically, we want to be seen. It's, it's why people groan about their aches or share their aches or tweet their aches or Instagram their casts or whatever it is. We want to be seen. We don't want to be alone in the pain. And Jesus sees. Jesus sees him. And he knew him. He knew he had been there a long time. So Jesus was not blind to the brokenhearted. He had eyes oriented towards those who needed compassion. Jesus is the master of the house of mercy. He's mercy in the flesh. Jesus notices hurting people, and so should we. Jesus walks amongst the suffering, so should we. So are you hurting? Are you carrying a hidden or obvious trauma wound? 
Let the word of the Lord speak to you today. And Jesus saw him. You better believe Jesus sees you in your hurt. He sees you. He knows what you're going through. Let that do something to your heart this morning. He sees you. So Jesus walks up to this man and he asks that strange question. Do you want to be healed? In my mind, it's a bizarre question. What would you say, by the way? You're 38 years sick. 38 years an invalid. What would you say if somebody asks you that question? Are you so passionate about being restored that with all the energy you have in you, you're like, yes, now, please, heal me? Or is it the reverse? Is your soul and your body so ravaged by 38 years of that chronic pain or the bed sores for laying there, or whatever it is, where you have nothing left in you and all you can muster is just like a sigh? Yes. I'm sorry, what? Yes. Or does something else come out of you completely, like bitterness and frustration has, has taken such a deep root in your soul that when you hear the question, do you want to be healed, you go, well, what do you think, Sherlock? Like, I'm sitting here at the edge of the pool that's known for healing. Of course I want to be healed. And vitriol spills out. Because pain and isolation does that to a soul that's meant to be redeemed, restored, and in communion. How would you answer the question? Well, we know how he answers it. Verses 7 through 9. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another one steps down before me. And Jesus says to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So, so get this, like, he doesn't really say yes to Jesus' question. He doesn't really say no to it. It's almost as though he offers an excuse. He's like, well, there's those people, and there's this whole situation, and then I, I, I try, but, but they get there before me. They, they get in the way. So he, he offers this, this excuse. It's like he, he does this kind of blame-shifting thing going. Well, I mean, I, I would get in there, but I can't, and then they're in my way. And there's no one to help me. So what am I to do? So it's not really a yes, it's not really a no. But what it is, is it's a groaning of the soul whose eyes aren't beholding what they should be beholding at that point. See, it's an it's a, it's a answer that's full of humanity. It's an answer that's full of frustration and pain and self-pity and sadness. Now, what's Jesus' response? Like, notice what he says or what he doesn't say or do. He doesn't say, hmm, let me, let me see if we can figure something out here. He doesn't like clear a path and pull a Moses maneuver and like, like push the, the Red Sea of humanity apart and be like, everyone make way. He, he doesn't go around like politicking and saying, hey, here's, here's what, I, here's what I, I think should happen. That guy's been here longer than you. He's been here 38 years. You've been here two. You're the back of the line. He's the front of the line. You move, you move. Let's all work together to, to make this thing happen. He also doesn't just pick the guy up and then in his divine knowing, know when it's the, the water's going to be stirring and, and like cannonball the guy in and just boom. Like he doesn't do that either. Why? 
Why doesn't he do these things? It's because Jesus does not play by the rules of their little healing game situation. Because he knows the life isn't in the bubbling water. He knows that that's not how it works. See, the man couldn't get to the, to the living water. The man couldn't get to the living water to get healed, but it's okay. It's okay because the living water came to him. Jesus is the embodiment of, of grace and truth and mercy and love and healing and restoration. Jesus is the living water that our souls need. And so that man couldn't get himself to salvation, but salvation got himself to that man. And he was healed because the living waters came to him. So this is a beautiful parable, a beautiful picture of salvation. This man, these people, they couldn't save themselves. And there was this rigged situation that, that bred competition rather than compassion and mercy for other people. And it was, and it was me first over you. And it wasn't actually going to heal anyone. But Jesus steps in and he cuts through all the religious garbage, gets past it, and says, get up, you're healed. Jesus is awesome. This is so awesome. Get up, you're healed. Pick up your bed, that symbol of your sickness, and carry it out of here in a victory march. And by the way, he asked the guy to do what the guy can't do, right? Can the guy get up? No. What does Jesus do? He says, get up. Why? Because Jesus' words empower that man to do what that man can't do on his own. There is power in the word of Christ. It is the word of Christ that takes the dead and makes them living, that takes the dark and makes it light, that takes the one with, with um, atrophied muscles and strengthens them, that takes the one with the brittle bones and fragile bones and makes them steel. It's the word of Christ that changes everything why John starts the whole book out by saying Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God made flesh. When Jesus says it, it happens. There's power in his Word. So get up. Pick up that symbol of your sickness as a sign of new life. And in that celebratory blur and dancing of stomping amazement that must have ensued, Jesus like disappears. I mean, this guy's been sick for 38 years, some 14,000 days of sickness. And the, the guy doesn't even get Jesus' name because Jesus just goes like, like, he's like ninja Jesus, right? He just like disappears, disappears into the crowd. So what is the sign? Like, what's the sign? We know what the miracle is. The guy can walk. But what's the sign? And remember, what John is putting forward is signposts that point to a greater reality, Right? Like the sign, San Francisco, like there's a sign that points to the greater reality of the city itself. So what is the sign here? Well, the story's not over yet. Let's keep going. There's an act two that will help us understand. So verses 9 through 13. Now that day was the Sabbath. That's where we collectively go, uh-oh, Jesus is in trouble. Oh no, here it comes. Because Sabbath was a day of rest. It was the day that, that God said, don't work. Realize that I hold the universe together. You and your job and all your striving, your ceasing, doesn't hold it together. So just enter into my rest. Know that I love you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to feed you. I got you. Enter into my rest. 
and stop striving. And so it was a really big deal to push against that because you were denying God as God. So this was a big deal to the, the Jewish people, okay? So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, and he's like, Well, the man who healed me, he's the one who told me to do this, right? Like Jesus under the bus. They asked him, Who's the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So this is the key to understanding the sign. See, the religious leaders, right, they see this guy carrying around his bed, his mat, his cot, his backpack, or his sleeping bag, and they pull him over, and they interrogate him, saying, dude, you can't do this. This is, this is a capital offense. You're in big trouble. And the man's like, dude, not my fault. It's the guy who healed me. He told me to do this. So you should be after him and, and not after me. Like, really gracious response, right? So, it's not his fault. Here's the other thing, by the way. Did this guy get healed because he's like, oh, you're Jesus, the Messiah. You're, you're the healer. I, I have faith in you. No. He doesn't even know who healed him. It's just this guy who walks up to him. In the, in the portico there. So he doesn't have faith in Jesus as the Messiah, yet Jesus, in his grace, just does this miraculous thing and changes his whole life. Okay, so we're, we're a bit closer now to understanding the sign. But we need to go further into the pool. Let's go deeper. We're almost there. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him. He found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Look at you. So sin no more. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So the man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is where I like, what, what is this? And I don't, I, I, maybe I'm just reading this really ungracious, and so I just want to put that on the table. But it's like, this guy knows that he was in trouble for this, and now they're mad at the guy who told him to do this. So he's at the temple, and Jesus is like, dude, you're, you're healed. This is great. Go and live this way. And he leaves and he goes to the, the religious police station and says, I know his name. It's Jesus. So I'm off the hook. I don't know. It just it seems really unthankful and ungracious to me. Um, so he told them that it was Jesus who healed them. And, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Okay. So amazing. Jesus finds him. Jesus does the seeking. Jesus does the searching. Jesus does the finding. Jesus has found this guy twice to minister to his body and to minister to his soul. This is a picture of salvation. He finds us. Okay. So, um, I just find this curious, his response. But I can't, I can't tell you the answer why he does it, but um, it does feel a little bit at least thick-headed or selfish or, or un ungrateful. So the guy doesn't come across in my reading as this, this paragon of faith by any means. But it's all part of the outworking of God's plan. See, Jesus could have said this, right? He could have healed him. He could have just said, get up. But he doesn't. He says, get up and do what? Pick up your bed and walk. He gives them very specific directions that are in direct violation against 
the Sabbath. And it says, pick up your bed and walk in the text multiple times. John is saying, key in on this. This is really important. Pick up your bed and walk. Why does Jesus give him these directions? It's because Jesus knew it was the Sabbath. It's because Jesus knew what he was doing. He's like, ooh, look, a bear poke. Like he's, he's poking the religious bear at this point. This is Jesus, the provocateur. And why is he doing it? Because he's not just there to heal this one guy. He's there to heal the sickness within the hearts of his people that have distorted reality, that have bent and twisted imaginations on who God is and how he operates. He is there to provide a healing, not only for this guy, but for all the people and for all the world, a people who are a mass of messy humanity who need radical grace coming to them or else we have zero hope. So that's why he's doing what he's doing. He came to deal with the paralyzed spiritual condition of his people. He came to expose and deconstruct the broken systems of faith that they operated by. Notice, by the way, that Jesus doesn't ask this man to break the law. Because the law said, honor the Sabbath. Don't work. And humanity and their brokenness says, okay, but we, we have to figure out then what exactly that looks like. And then this whole system was built up. There's 39 categories of work. 39 categories of work. You couldn't do this small thing or this small thing. And suddenly this day that was meant to be flourishing and blessing becomes a, a, a burden and now has put fear, an unhealthy fear on people. Like, can I do this? Can I do that? And suddenly it's no longer about God. Suddenly it's part of a self-righteous system that is about performing in ways in order to have God pleased with you. It's just like reverse the entirety uh, of the point. So Jesus says this is not okay. They turned God's word for rest and flourishing into exhausting, rigorous demands. The religious leaders had lost the plot. Delight in God devolved a burdensome obligation that cultivated self-righteousness. And so here's the brilliance of Jesus. He heals the sick, unsavory, unclean man, and he exposes the sickness of the religious system of the people. He has come to expose the lie and to bring the truth. And so when the religious leaders confront Jesus, we get this in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father's working until now, and I'm working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, big uh uh-oh, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, quick little pro tip, by the way, if somebody comes to your door, knocks on your door, and starts to tell you about Jesus, but then they say Jesus isn't God, and Jesus never claimed to be God, take them to John chapter 5. It's why they killed him, because they knew what he was saying. He's like, God, who, who yes, rested in the Sabbath, you know, the whole beginning of the Bible, seven days, he, he's, he's entered this rest, but he's still upholding the universe. And all the rabbis agreed. He's upholding the universe. He's bringing life and he's bringing judgment. So yes, God is still at work. We just enter into his rest. And Jesus says, Father's at work. That means I'm at work because, huh? Right? And they go, no, 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 no. That's not okay. You can't. You can't say that. You can't claim divine prerogative. You can't claim divine nature. And Jesus says, oh yeah. I'm my father's son. So what's the sign? What's the sign? Jesus is God with us, whose radical grace brings renewal 
and deconstructs the religious systems that we make. The sign is that God is with us, and he, in his radical grace, is bringing renewal, bringing life to death. And he's deconstructing the broken religious systems that we have made. See, human beings have this propensity, this this, uh, habit to distort the truth of God's love, and we codify, we domesticate, and we formulate his grace. We neuter the truth of grace by, uh, of, of salvation by grace. And we like to put, put his truth in this box and put some levers and some buttons on it so we can pull them and push them so we can kind of feel in control and do the things that we need to do. His grace is always way more wild than our systems can ever fathom. And so he blows it all up. He exposes their distorted understanding of God's love. And he's trying to pull off the shackles of a system that are, that are crushing the sheep that he came to save. The law and the temple system that had been meant for loving worship had been weaponized. The pool of Bethesda, which should have been a house of mercy, had been distorted into a house of shame. And Jesus comes to cleanse the temple and, and to cleanse all this and say, this is not the way. Jesus is God with us whose radical grace brings renewal, deconstructs the religious systems we make. And, and by the way, um, that, that word um, deconstruct is, is a, a popular word. It's, it's loaded with a lot, of, a lot of energy and momentum in our culture because a lot of people are deconstructing their faith. They grew up in church. They, they've come across some other reading of the Bible. They feel like they've been sold a bill of goods. So then they, they reread it in a different way and go, oh, well, that was just, you know, aimed at that culture back then. We can't really trust it. And so they're deconstructing their faith. But no, no, you, they, don't, they don't get to own that word. Like, the culture doesn't get to own that word. Jesus deconstructed the lies first. Jesus was the, de- the great deconstructor who came and said, all of this, this is garbage. This isn't true. This isn't what I said. This isn't who God is. This is. So he deconstructs all of that so that we can see the truth. And, you know, it makes me wonder, like, if Jesus were to walk in these doors... And I know his spirit's within us and we're the body of Christ, but if Jesus of Nazareth, you know, in bodily were to walk through those doors, I wonder what he would blow up in you, in you and me, in our system. What would he blow up? What would he deconstruct? Would we worship the one who's healing us or would we persecute him for messing up our system? Because that's not the way we do it here. So that brings me back to where we began. I said we'd answer this question, so let's try the question. Help me out here. Do you want to be? Thank you. Do you want to be healed? Why would Jesus ask an invalid, a man who was sick for 38 years, who was at the local healing hotspot, why would he ask him, do you want to be healed? I don't think it was just a rhetorical question. I think he's asking an honest, profound question. He, because, look, he knows that if he heals this man, that man's life will radically change. He knows if that guy is now to get up and carry his mat out, that that guy's days are going to be different, right? That guy's rhythms, his habituations are going to be different. That guy's going to have to go get a job. That guy cannot no longer self-identify as the guy who has been sick for 38 years that no one has helped and no one loves. 
That guy can't have that be his identity anymore. So Jesus knows if he heals him, everything changes for that guy. Complete life renewal. Spiritual renewal will bring a whole new life to us. That guy is going to have to let go of his past grievances. That guy will have to enter into new joys, total life change. And it's the same with us. When God changes our life, when he renews us, it means everything will be different for us because Jesus has stepped onto the shady porch of our life and brought healing. See, what is, like our current situation, it often exerts a greater pull on us than what could be. The power of the status quo is often way stronger than the ache for something else, for something new. The power of the familiar is often way fiercer than the future of flourishing we could have. Our muscle memory, our habituations often outweigh our good intentions. And so as we close today, it's of great importance that we don't just ask why Jesus would ask this question to this man. Friends, we have to hear him ask us the question. Like, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? He needs to ask us that question. We need to hear him ask that question. Because let's not kid ourselves. In, in our brokenness and in our sin, we have grown very familiar to shadowed porches. We have grown very comfortable to the mats of, of, of sin and brokenness that we've laid on that are nicely contoured to our body, right? And it's, it, we just know it. it it's comfortable comfortable to us. So bitterness, regrets, offenses taken, fear, addictions, they are all way more delicious to us than we are readily able to admit. Could it be that our grumbling and our complaining is way sweeter on our lips than prayers are to the God who can heal and redeem? So for some of us today, um, we have uh, not really wanted to be healed from things that have been buried deep in our past. So do you want Jesus and his wild grace to blow up your distorted versions of religion, your exhausting systems of legalism or superstition? I mean, do you want him to heal you of your self-constructed religious system that has you always in the right and the wrong always out there and Jesus, you need to fix those people. Do you want to be healed of your past traumas? Or are your wounds too much part of your identity? Because who in the world would you be if you're not the person who was hurt and damaged as, as a, a young kid or as a high schooler or, or in college? Who would you be if you don't feed on those hurts? Because that's who you are. It is not who you are. It's part of your story. You are his. You're healed. But are we willing to be healed from those things? And let's, let's drive this home and tighten it up a little bit here. For others of us, the question Jesus is asking us is, do you want to be healed from what's happened in the last two years? You do know there's been some wounds that have happened in the last two years, right? 
Do you want Jesus to heal you from the paralyzing fear that has invaded your body and your nervous system from all the scrolling, from all the news feeds, from all the conversations, from all the toxins that have been poured on us from every angle? Do you want him to heal you of those fears? Do you want him to heal you of your anger and your bitterness because life didn't bounce the way you wanted it to from, since March of 2020? Like, do you want your posture of taking offense and relishing in the arguments, do you want that healed? Do you want him to heal you of your bitterness or your sadness? Or do you want him to heal your heart so you can forgive the person who said this or said that to you at church or online or in some meeting? Like, do do I want to be healed of the pastoral wounds that I have felt over the last two years because of the, the intense politicalization, the polarization. I'm, I'm too red. I'm too, I'm too blue. I'm too left. I'm too right. I went to Instagram too quickly. I never went to Instagram with a, with a comment. Do I want to be healed from those or, or do I hold those things as, as badges of honor, as some kind of self-pity to make me feel like I'm a good enough leader because I withstood the crucible? When 50% of pastors surveyed in the last year have said they were this close, not to just bailing on their job, but bailing on vocational ministry permanently when they wanted to move to the public sector. Where am I putting my identity in any of that stuff? Like, God, heal me of that, and God, heal me of, of my penchant and my posture of, of going to sadness versus joy. Like, I go, I go to melancholy real quick. Do I want to be healed of the deliciousness of, like, moping? God, heal me. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? When he comes to us messes of humanity on the shaded porches that we live, he brings total life, renewal. He deconstructs our self-made salvation projects, and he calls us to sin no more. So friends, do you want to be made well? And this, help me out in, in closing, help me out. Just answer this with a, with a, with a simple yes, if, if you can. Do you believe he can heal you? Okay, from, from our gut. Do you believe this Jesus of Nazareth, the one that death took down but couldn't hold him, who got up and now has ascended and sits on the throne of heaven, do you believe he can heal you? He can heal us. He can heal us. Father, thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for your scriptures that reveal the brilliance of Christ. Thank you that you love us so much. You're not willing to allow us to wallow in the self-destructive systems that we've created. Thank you for your renewing grace. Thank you for the grace that deconstructs our broken ways of seeing the world and engaging you in others. So Lord, we love you. Um, we thank you for this time. It's in the name of Christ that we pray.